Yud, Mar Cheshvan, Tafshin, Ayin Chet. Coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York. I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network.
One of their classics opens things up here on this week's edition of the Israel Show. Hamagafayim Shel Baruch. Baruch's Boots. Don't ask. It's like a weird song, but cute, and everyone loves it. My name is Mayor Weingarten. Welcome, one and all, to this week's edition of the Israel Show, right here on the Nachum Siegel Network, where you should stay tuned all day, all week, for the great programming. Um... We are here each and every Monday, immediately following JM and the AM. This week, we have an exceptional timing, because in Israel, they went back to standard time on Saturday night, and we don't go back to standard time until this coming Saturday night, so this week there are six hours, and I usually say it's 9 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Israel, this is 9 a.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Israel time this week and this week only. Of course, if you're listening to us live anywhere else around the world, then that's the time that we're on, whatever time it is that you're listening to it. And online, via the app, Nachum Siegel Network app available for free, and via the Nachum Siegel Network website, nachumsegel.com. You can listen on the archives to any show going back almost five years. Uh, just go to archives, then click on the Israel Show, and you can scroll down to your heart's content and see all the wonderful uh, things that we've been talking about over the years. Today is, uh, as Nachum mentioned earlier in uh, on Jam in the AM, today we're devoting almost the entire show to a historic event that has become somewhat obscure outside of Israel and maybe outside of a very religious Zionist or Zionist um, communities around the world, most people, when you tell them about the Balfour Declaration, might feel stumped. What's the Balfour Declaration? Who's Balfour? Other than they might know that the Prime Minister's house in Israel is on Balfour Street and uh, is often referred to in the media as the family on Balfour Street. (laughs) As funny as that is. Uh... Who is he? What did he declare? Why is it important? We're going to um, try and share with you some history. Obviously, won't be able to get to all of it, but at least some of it, some of the history. Um, bring you back to that time, 100 years ago. There was so much going on 100 years ago. Uh, it was one of the more um, active times of history. History was busy, let's just say it that way. God was busy. Um, in uh, in the autumn of 1917, and here we are 100 years later in the autumn of 2017, and uh, the world is a totally different place, and um, not only the entire world is, but the Jewish people specifically are in a different place, more than any one of us could have imagined 100 years ago, our ancestors, our forefathers, and so forth. We'll share that with you. Um, also, lots of music. Not necessarily related to the Balfour Declaration, just the music that we like and we think you would like to. We'll share with you some new, some old, some nostalgic, as we usually do. So, when you think of the Balfour Declaration, you got to start from the beginning because some people may not be familiar with it. So, we'll give a very brief historic background. 
Then we'll go to some music, and then we'll uh, then we'll go on. So, in 1917, World War One is raging around the world. Uh, America is already in the war. America tried its best to stay out. President was Woodrow Wilson. He was, uh, one could say, almost a pacifist in that sense. Had very left-leaning views. Didn't want the United States to get involved in the European war, but at some point realized that there was no choice. The world was uh, was in, in chaos, and, and millions and millions and millions, I don't know the exact number, probably tens of millions, were killed during World War I. It was a, one of the bloodiest wars um, that the world had seen up until that point. It was um, the last war in which they were st- the, the soldiers were still riding on uh, horses. Not all of them, obviously, but uh, the brigades that were uh, horse-driven and using bayonets and all that stuff. Um, by the time World War II was around, the technology that man developed allowed man to kill man even more efficiently. Most of, or the entire Middle East and even parts of uh, parts of Europe were controlled up until that point by a huge empire that was um, headquartered, based in what is now Turkey. It was called the Ottoman Empire. And it really spanned what is today Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, the uh, Gulf states, Jordan, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, even at times parts of Egypt, and then up into parts of Europe like uh, Greece, at different points, the Ottoman Empire was corrupt, was not at all benevolent in any which way. It was a terrible dictatorship, brutal to its uh, citizens, to the people uh, that were occupied by it. In fact, the Jews that lived in Israel... the the Ottoman Empire lasted for about uh, five to six hundred years. That's a long time, and lots of Jews lived there under that period of time. It, under them, during that period of time, they um, found the conditions to be horrific, not very friendly. Um, so, in 1917, there was a movement afoot already of Jews, mainly from Eastern Europe, mainly to return to the land of Israel for a lot of different reasons. We don't have enough time to get into all the reasons that that started developing at that time. It started with rabbis, the Zionist movement, not the official one, but the movement of Jews to return to the land of Israel from Eastern Europe in the 1800s began with rabbis who saw this as the beginning of God's fulfillment of the promise of our return to the land of Israel and sovereignty over the land of Israel. And uh, the late 1800s, the name Theodore Herzl comes into play, and Theodore Herzl takes, quote-unquote, Zionism from being a grassroots religious movement to being a political 
organized movement that puts at its at its um, as its motto to do everything possible to save Jewish lives, to take Jews out of peril. And Herzl thought the way to do that was to bring them to the land of, to, to create, let's put it this, to create a state for the Jewish people, which, as time went by, he understood would have no choice but to be in the land of Israel. And so, Herzl convened this Zionist Congress, and he begins what will become a worldwide movement, really, a worldwide movement of Jews doing everything possible to get the nations of the world, the Ottomans who controlled the land of Israel, anybody else who they could bring to bear, anybody to agree that the Jewish people should be allowed to create a state in the land of Israel. This first burst in public of the Zionist, political Zionist movement happened in 1897. That's 120 years ago. In 1897, with big fanfare, very chic, very fancy, wearing tuxedos and, uh, you know, uh, I think even speaking German in most cases, the high society, Herzl considered, Herzl was assimilated. He considered himself, you know, European, but he also understood that he was Jewish. As this didn't take off as much in Western Europe, it took off in Eastern Europe, where there was a lot of trouble. The Jews in Eastern Europe suffered much more than the Jews in Western Europe. And they were also, maybe connected, but they were also much more religious, much more believing. And they steered this Zionist movement toward the concept of a land, a state in the land of Israel. So, 1897, for the first time, an official, public, almost political, diplomatic initiative taken by one man, the last person that you would think likely to be that person, Theodor Herzl, to bring this message and try and get the nations of the world to agree Theodor Herzl never thought that there was going to be a Jewish army that would go and conquer the land of Israel. That was never his concept. He never, he, I don't think he could have thought of it. But he wanted to use diplomacy. He wanted to use the power of, of his pen. He was an author. He was a playwright. He was a journalist. He wanted to use the power of PR, buzz, to create a feeling around the world that the Jews deserve to have a state and return to their homeland. At the same time, in the 1800s, a little earlier, besides the Jewish rabbi, the Jewish religious leaders, like the Natsiv, like Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher, and others, like Rav Al-Kalai, Yehud Al-Kalai, who saw this as a religious 
demand, imperative. There were also Christian leaders and believers around the world who somehow saw the beginning of the Jewish return to the land of Israel. There were already some Jews coming back. There were small agricultural villages. Christian leaders, Christian thinkers, and Christian rank-and-file members who also felt that that is part of God's plan and that the Jews deserve to return. It's fitting, it's proper that the Jews return to the land of Israel. So, there is in the world both a Jewish and somewhat non-Jewish Christian feeling of return to the land of Israel for the Jewish people. It would set history straight, as some people would say. The world at the time, a large chunk of the world, Europe especially, was controlled by empires. As we mentioned, the Ottoman Empire. There was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And there was the British Empire. The British Empire controlled huge, huge parts of, of the earth, of the world. They were one of the major leading superpowers of the, of the time. But when World War I was taking place, they also understood that if they wanted to win in the Middle East, if they wanted a to be able to overthrow the Ottomans and get them out of there, they would need help from the local population. And so, some went to the local Arabs and tried to get them to coalesce into armed brigades and to work together with the British to chase out the Ottomans. It worked somewhat, not a lot. But as part of that... Some British officials, ministers, wrote to the heads of the Arab tribes that um, if it was successful, the British would allow them to set up independent Arab states. At the same time, they were promising the French certain areas because the French and the British were allied. So you have a, a mess of situations where different world powers with very little communications, don't forget, there's no telephone, there's, uh, there's surely no internet or email, there's no nothing, there's mail, there's Morse code maybe by then, but not, not much in way of communication. So different parts of British officialdom whether it's it's army people, whether it's ministers, uh, whether it's members of the House of Lords, whatever it is, promised different people the same thing. So the Arabs were led to believe that they would have sovereignty to be able to set up their own states, their independent states, in the areas that they consider theirs, which some might say included Palestine. And Palestine, at the time, was a name, just a name, there were no Palestinian people yet, it was a name given 
to what we now know as the land of Israel, including Yehudan Shomron, and what is currently the country of Jordan. All of that was Palestine. So now you have a situation where you have a strong Jewish lobby called Zionists, led by people like Chaim Weizmann, who are pressuring the British to make a commitment to the Jewish people, just like they made a commitment to the Arabs, to say that the Jews will be able to have a sovereign state in what was at that time called Palestine, but what we would call Israel. Up until that point in history, other than being <laughs> tortured and, 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 and killed and pogromed and crusadered and inquisitioned, Jews weren't treated very well. Nobody throughout the history of almost 1,500 years, nobody was willing to say, oh, the Jews, we like the Jews. Let's, let's give them a place in the land of Israel, which was their ancestral homeland. Nobody ever even thought of it. It was the, the wildest, craziest dream. But it was a dream that the Jews kept in their hearts. Ani ma'amin, b'viyad ha-mashiach, and we'll return to the land of Israel, v'kabetz, it's a dream that we kept alive for all that time. And now, you see, we see little, little, little specks of light where Christians are saying, it's not such a bad idea to have uh, Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. They belong there. And then you have a Zionist movement, more specks of light. You have Jews living, leaving Eastern Europe and going and establishing little towns, villages, mainly agricultural villages. You have rabbis calling for them to do so and collecting money. So there's little things happening, but they're tiny little specks of light. And still, the Ottoman Empire controls the land of Israel. They're not interested in the Jews raising their head and establishing agricultural villages and establishing commerce and towns and cities in order to pave the way to having sovereignty. The Ottomans are not excited. So God... In, in ways that we don't understand, but God takes care of things. And um, World War I comes about, and the Ottoman Empire is defeated, and the area known as Palestine, but that we know as Eretz Israel, and we're talking about both banks of the Jordan River, Shtei Gadot Layarden, Ever Hayarden, which the Torah calls Ever Hayarden, the area that was Sihon and Moab, in Amon, area that um, um, God, Ruvain God and Chatzis Shevet Menashe, that area, that is all included in this area called Palestine. And as the war effort continues, 
for whatever reasons, let's put the reasons aside, we don't have enough time to discuss the reasoning, but there were reasons that the British felt that it would be important to come out with a declaration that, would, that supports the Jewish aspirations, the Zionist aspirations of returning to the land of Israel. So imagine, after a long galut, to a great extent, Jewish people in, in Western Europe for sure are assimilated. In Eastern Europe, they are treated horrifically. They have no rights. So what keeps them alive? What keeps the Jews alive? Hope. And suddenly Jews see a speck of hope, a drop, a little glimmer of hope. That's why they held Herzl in such great esteem. Because to him, to them, he was the embodiment of hope. Herzl had died already by the time 1917 rolls around. He died young. We oftentimes joke, yeah, you start a Jewish organization and try and deal with all the factions. See how your heart holds out. Chaim Weitzman was the president of the Zionist organization and he was at that time in Britain. He had just become a citizen. He he came from Eastern Europe. He was a brilliant scientist. Many of you know the story that he, uh, as a chemist, he was able to formulate what was certain uh, thing that was needed for the British war effort. And so they felt a certain debt of gratitude to him. But it's not just that, really. It's, it's far from just that. Because someone like Arthur Balfour, who was the foreign secretary, this is what we call the secretary of state, at the time, was a Zionist. He was a Christian religious Zionist. So he felt his own yearnings and reasons to work his connections and and his influence in the British Empire to try and move forward the Jewish people's dream. There was also a spy ring by the name of Neely. We've spoken about it before. We'll speak about it again. Basically, one family, the Aronson family, led by Aaron Aronson, a fascinating figure. His sister, Sarah Aronson, other cousins, Avshalom Feingold, Naaman Belkind, Schneerson, there was a small group who realized that they bet on the right horse. Everybody else was betting on the Turkish horse because they didn't want to get in trouble with the Turks who were still there. But they nearly bet on the right horse, the, the British horse. And they supplied invaluable information. I mean, information that was so important for the British forces led by Allenby, General Allenby, to be able to conquer Palestine, the land of Israel. It was a very difficult battle. 
But the information that these Jews, the first modern Israeli spy wing, the precursor of the Mossad, a small group, but with a lot of guts and a lot of information, it was that that might have also helped the British understand that they owe a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people, not just what Chaim Weizmann was doing. We don't hear often about the Aronson's contribution to this because the Mapai hierarchy in Israel that founded the state and controlled it until 1977 didn't want them to be in the spotlight. They didn't want them to be known. So they just hid them and they spoke about Weitzman. But Aronson was a key figure to this as well. In fact, around this time, this, this, this spectacular moment in history of autumn 1917 where so much was happening, where the British, a hundred years ago, started their attack on Beersheba. They came into the land of Israel from the south going up. So they were going like from the Sinai from Egypt where they had a bases up to Beersheba. The Battle of Beersheba, which took place a hundred years ago, was the last battle in military history that took place on horseback. And then they went up and ultimately took Yerushalayim and then further up, as we know, Allenby entered Yerushalayim in December around Hanukkah time, Zman Geulah. So a hundred years ago, Sarah Aronson was caught. The nearly spy ring was caught by the Turks, and her yurt site was just a week or two ago. Sarah Aronson, who was being tortured by the Turks in order to give up names of the uh, other members of the spy ring, and she knew she could not withstand torture. In fact, usually no one can withstand torture. So she did the thing that she felt was the only way to protect the other members of the the group, and she was able to smuggle a gun into where they were holding her, in her house, in the Aronson house, and she committed suicide there. You can visit the Aronson house in Zichron Yaakov. It's a really fascinating story, and it's fascinating to be able to touch the house. It is pretty much preserved as it was 100 years ago and visit her gravesite and the graves of others. So now the British have a reason to want to help the Jews. There's a lot of lobbying going on, a lot of pressure. Plus, internally, there's a feeling that we Christians want to do this for the Jewish people. And so, a, a proposal is made that the British government should put out a statement. That's all, a statement that would say to the effect that would say we support and will work toward establishing a Jewish, the word they use is homeland, in Palestine. And the exact text was worked back and forth and forth and back. Because every word counted and how would it be interpreted. It was written and delivered, it was written and then delivered on November 2nd, 1917 
to Lord Rothschild, who was considered the leader of the Jewish community in England. Very fascinating. Um, almost eccentric person. Just <laughs> some other time we'll talk about him. But he's the one who gets to receive this letter at the British government. It's an official British document from the foreign office signed by the, the foreign minister, what they call the foreign secretary, Lord Balfour. And it starts, Dear Lord Balfour, Dear Lord Rothschild, excuse me, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. That's like a preamble. Most people quoting the Balfour Declaration will begin with His Majesty, but um, which we'll do in a second. But the preamble is, we're giving you this official document. And after the statement itself, Balfour writes, I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. So while Jews around the world are in the midst of World War I, and if they're in Europe, they're being brutally killed as soldiers on all sides. And wherever they are around the world, if they still have a yearning for the land of Israel, but they also know that for 1,800 years or so, there was no way. How, how, how are we going to go to the land of Israel? How are we going to establish a state in Israel? Why, wh- what mechanism do we use? Who's going to let us do that? Suddenly, on that day, November 2nd, 1917, 100 years ago, suddenly, this little piece of paper with this short declaration, this short note of policy of the British Empire, which controlled, as we said, endless, endless amounts of of uh, of countries and of land around the globe and now after world war as world war 1 is ending after world war 1 they will control the entire middle east they come out with this declaration now you can start understanding how amazing this is his majesty's government says the declaration view with favor the establishment in palestine of a national home for the jewish people doesn't say a sovereign state. It says a national home. All these things were discussed. It says in Palestine. It also doesn't say that they will actually do one. They're not promising it. They're viewing it with favor. Later we'll see the rest. They view with favor. And will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. Okay. We'll try hard to make it happen. There's no promise here other than we'll try. And there is a caveat. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. This is really a loaded sentence. That means if there are Arabs living in Palestine, putting up a Jewish state or whatever it is that we would do, a homeland, however we want to set it up, 
it can't impinge in any which way on the <clears throat> on the religious and civil rights of the non-Jews. How do we understand that? How do we interpret that? Oh, they'll fight over that for a long time. Or, it also can hurt the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country, which is interesting, also an interesting thought. Meaning, if there's a state of Israel, it doesn't mean that every Jew around the world has to become automatically a citizen of the state of Israel and that he will no longer have rights in their own country. That's an interesting thought, but if you think about what things were like a hundred years ago, where Jews were so afraid of everything, they were afraid too that Zionists will end up destroying the Jewish communities in the diaspora because the... um, the, the the rulers, the governments, the kings, the queens of all the places that they lived will say to them, well, you have your own place now, go away. And they didn't want that. That's it. That is the whole thing. A few lines. Let me read to you from the book of Ezra. Imagine now that the first Bet HaMikdash thousands of years ago is destroyed by Bavel, by Nebuchadnezzar. And the people of Judea are exiled. They're sent to Galut Bavel, Al Naharot Bavel, Sham Yashavnu, Gam Bachinu, B'Zochreinu Etzion. Seventy years they're there. About two generations, generation and a half. But they assimilate very, very quickly. They marry non-Jewish wives very, very quickly. They seem to get comfortable to be successful in business, in real estate. But they're only there temporarily. You would assume they were dreaming to go back to the land of Israel. Maybe there was some sort of a Zionist movement at the time that talked about returning to the land. It was only 70 years. There were people alive that were still, you know, not many probably, but if somebody was um, in his late 60s, early 70s, he he remembers um, when we got to Bavel what it was like. But the Jews, they know they can't return to the land of Israel, and so they settle in. Enough tells them to do that. Yirmiyahu tells them to do that. Settle in. Build your homes and so forth. But wait, because there will come the time in 70 years that God will redeem you. And how does that happen? How does God return the Jewish people from that very first exile, or second, I mean, other than Mitzrayim, that very first exile in Bavel? Was there a shofar blown and everybody heard the shofar and said, Oh, Mashiach is here. The redemption is here. Let's go back to the land of Israel. Did a Navi, I mean, they were Nevi'im, still Nevi'im at that time. Did the Navi get up and say, This is it. We're going back. Let's go. Everybody come with me. Follow me. 
we'll take you back to the land of Israel. Well, the land of Israel was occupied at that time by an empire, the Persian Empire. Could the Jewish people just go? They were in a very similar situation to the Jews in the 1800s. Maybe I want to go, but how can I go? The Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, they're not going to let me in. And so the book of Ezra opens as follows, Uvishnat achat lekoresh melech paras. Heir Hashem et ruach koresh melech paras vayaver kol bechol malchuto vegam bimichtav lemor. Koresh is the king, the supreme leader of the empire, the Persian empire. And at the beginning of his reign, he sends out word and he writes it down. He writes down a declaration. Who of you, of his people, May God be with you and go up to Yerushalayim, Asher Yehuda, in the land of Judea, even at Bet Hashem, Elokei Yisrael, Hu HaElokim, Hu HaElokim Asher Yerushalayim. V'chol HaNishar M'kola M'kamot, if you decide not to go and you stay, Yinasu Anshei M'komo B'Kesef U'Vizahav U'Vurachushu V'Vehimayim Anedavah L'Veit HaElokim Asher Yerushalayim. Establish a UJA, Establish American friends of building of the Beis Hamikdash and support it. Support those who do go. But the rank and file don't go. Only the heads of Judah, Benjamin, the Kohanim, and the Levim. Those who God sparked a light in them, they went. We know in the Gemara that a small percentage went. The Gemara tells us, and we see in the Kuzari and in other places, that had everybody picked themselves up when the antecedent of the Balfour Declaration was given, Hatsarat Korach, the Korach Declaration, Koresh Declaration, that the Geula would have come. That's what the Gemara says. But they didn't. The Kuzari says they preferred to have their comforts in Bavel. And so only a small group went. They started building the Beit HaMikdash. They stopped. They had lots of trouble they had locals, local people that the Babylonians put in place of the Judeans who were there, and those locals made their life miserable. They were the Palestinians of their time. They were the people that said, well, if you want to have your state, you, you got it. what about us? We were here before you. And the leadership, the Nevi'im of the time, say, no, sorry. This is our land. The fact that somebody put you here doesn't make it yours.
So the people at the time, and we see it in the prophets, in Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, it took a very long time, years and years and years went by from the initial Aliyah when they came to when they actually were able to finish the Beit HaMikdash. Haggai yells at them, what are you doing? Why aren't you building the Beit HaMikdash? 20 years went by. Why aren't you building the Beit HaMikdash? And they do. They listen. Koresh, many see as the paradigm for Balfour. And by the way, an actual written declaration of Koresh can be found it was dug up like so much of the Near East in the 1800s archaeologists found what they call a prism it's, it's a three-sided um, object stone and carved onto it is the declaration of Koresh and it sits in of all places the British Museum and on that declaration, we see a little bit of a different angle than the Torah's, the Tanakh's angle. The angle there is, Korah says, all people of the world that I control, all people of the empire, if you are not where you're supposed to be, you can go and, create, and, and have sovereignty. And not sovereignty, you can go back and you can build your temples. No, you're not going to be sovereign, you'll be under, under me but you can live and reside in your land and worship accordingly. You'll have your homeland. Many anti-Zionists look at, look at the situation during the Balfour Declaration and say, well, it's not a miracle. It's a part of history. That's what it was after World War I. We noticed Woodrow Wilson and his Mishigas and the, and the uh, League of Nations, the San Remo Conference. The whole idea was to allow each group to have sovereignty over their land. Well, that's exactly what Koresh was doing. This is almost a carbon copy, like a replay, a rerun. And somehow our reaction is almost the same. Well, not that important. But it is so important. Just like Hatzarat Koresh is God's hand in history. God saying, I'm returning you to the land the Balfour Declaration is God saying, I'm giving you the opening. Here's the opening. Use it. Take it. You know what's interesting? In Yeshayahu Memhei, Pasuk Aleph. Yeshayahu prophesizes in the name of, of Hashem, telling Koresh that he's going to succeed in conquering the Babylonian Empire and God is going to help him do that and we know why because he's going to be God's messenger to send the people of Israel to allow the people of Israel of Judea back so it says Hashem, thus says the Lord Le Mishicho Le Koresh to Koresh his anointed one isn't that interesting that the Tanakh uses the word Mashiach, 
when referring to Koresh. Because Koresh does a messianic thing by returning the people to Israel. have a few minutes left. I haven't done music, and I, I apologize, but uh, we have so much material to talk about. We'll, we'll reserve the music for next week. There is a uh, book that is, I believe, still available. It was written by uh, Rav Kasher. It's a tremendous gadol of... Um, of the previous generation. He wrote the Torah Shlema uh, and others. This is called Hatkufa Hagdola and it is actually bound in together with Kol Hator, which was written by the Talmidim of the Gra. Rav Menachem Kasher, in, in answering the Satmar claim that says that the Jews can't go to Eretz Israel and start a sovereign nation there, because of, we've spoken about this, because of the Gemara in Ketuvot, which talks about three oaths that Ke'ilu, God, made the Jewish people take, that one of them is that they should not aggressively return to the land of Israel by, by force. Though he says, well, the rabbis of that time, many of them understood that the Balfour Declaration takes that away. It's no longer going up by force if you have the major powers of the world, and that was later codified. The Balfour Declaration became part of the mandate of Britain in in Versailles, in San Remo. It was built in. The fact is that the British later had second thoughts, doubts. They stopped allowing Jews to come into the land. There's so much to talk about there, but but at this point in time, as it becomes part of the San Remo um, document, which set up the Middle East with mandates and so forth, so I'm quoting to you from the Or Sameach of Mayor Simcha Hakohen of Dvinsk. Omnam, he says, truthfully, Ka'et, Heseba Hahashgacha, the providence of God has brought it about. Asher Ba'asefata Mamlachotane Orot Besan Remo, the enlightened nations who were meeting in San Remo, Nitan Sav, Asher Eretz Yisrael Tehiel Am Yisrael. There was given a declaration that the land of Israel belongs to the people of Israel. And now we have no fear anymore of these three Shvot because this new return to the land of Israel was given a license by the world powers. The mitzvah yishuv haaretz returns to its place. And every person is, is commanded to help in this endeavor.
ואם ייתן הקודש ברוך השם יתברך, and God will help, ויתרחב הדבר, ויגדל, ויפרח כאשר שנה, כמו שנגדלו בימי ארתחססתא, אשר היו נתונים תחת פרס, ואף כעת תחת ממשלת ארץ האי, עם בריטניה המתונה, אז בטח הוא עניין העומד ברומו של עולם. רב מאיר שמחה דוויסק, דמשר חוכמה מייקס דיס פרלל, Because if this blossoms and if it grows, as we know it did, says the Meshach Chachma, just like it happened in the Persian times, now it would happen in the British times, as betach huinyan ha'omeid b'umoshel olam. This is earth-shattering. This is like as high as we could get. And then he says, even though at that time they had Nevi'im, we don't. Mi'odea, he says, Ulai, kemo churban habayit ha'shini haya shelo al pi'a nevu'ah. By the time the second temple was destroyed, there was no longer nevu'ah. Kein yihiyah anachat even pina shelo al pi'a nevi'im uchnetilato v'chein netinato. Maybe... This is amazing because this is the Orsameach saying this. Maybe putting down the cornerstone for the Beit HaMikdash in our time will be done without a Navi, just like the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed without a Navi. Achein b'muflam imchal tachkor, ki zetalui b'hofaat or eloki. Don't think too much into it. Because it's greater than us, bigger than us. Now this is in, in, in the early 1900s. Now we know a lot better. We know things that Rameir Simcha of Dvinz, Dar Sameach, didn't know. We know that there's a state of Israel. We know that it's grown and prospered. We know that it's uh, an unbelievable place. We know that there are more Jews there than there are in any other place around the world. And what's it dependent on? Because it's talui behofa'at or eloki lirot asher inyanim aklaliyim v'kinyanim atziburim yu al-tarat ha-kodesh v'atzniyut k'mo sh'yasu anshei knesset ha-gdola. Aval yihiyeh ech sh'yeh. However it comes about, mitzvah tishu v'aretz Yisrael lo niftar mizeh. The mitzvah of living in Israel doesn't go away. There is a lot more to talk about, but the time... is run out, and that's without any music. I hope, I hope, I hope that this gave you a good idea and feeling of the time that we lived in back in 1917, what the feelings around the world were, what the situation of the Jews was, and how the Balfour Declaration was celebrated by so many as being literally a historic moment, a shining moment of God's grace of God's Hashgacha, just like Hatzarat Koresh, as, as the Or Sameach compares the two and others do as well. It's noted that Rav Kook had a tremendous celebration when the Balfour Declaration was made, and others as well. It's a hundred years ago, and it's amazing. It's nothing in history, but it's a long time for us. But look what happened in that short span of a hundred years. Look at 
just look at any video of Israel from the sky, from taken from a drone or from a plane. And that takes your breath away. We're going to close out the show. We're going to end it with uh, the song Ha'ishahu, and I'm dedicating the show, the song, and we'll speak more about him in future. Passed away yesterday someone who was a very, very, very close friend and a very special person, Sandy Eisenstadt. And um, as you can tell, it had a tremendous effect on, on me, but he had a tremendous effect on my life. He was one of a kind tzaddik in our time. And if you knew him, you understand what I'm saying. And if you didn't, I'll try and explain it in the future, but it's very hard to do because they just don't make him like that. I'm going to dedicate to him the song, Efo Yeshnam Od Anashim Kemo Ha'ish Ha'hu. Where are there any other people like that person? Coming up on uh, the Nachum Siegel Network, Yoni Pollock, and uh, after further review, new show covering the latest in the world of sports, of course, the World Series and so forth, and then the Great Monday Music Marathon. Thank you to uh, all the listeners. Thank you to the staff of Nachum Siegel Network, and my very special thanks, as always, to Nachum Siegel. Until next Monday, immediately following JM and the AM, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you that nice guys do not finish last. They're just running in a different race. <laughs> כמו האיש ההוא, אשר היה כערבות הבוכיות. איפה ישנם עוד אנשים בחורף שר בין ערבות בוכיות בקיץ בין אורות בצעי המים לחמו שילח על פני הנחל לדגה מקנה הסוף קראת לו עפיפון וכשהיה לאיש מגבעולי הערבות הבוכיות נטה סוכה מאבן המבצר האפורה בנה לו בית על מהנחל תחנה הקים זרה שדות שלח הונו על פני הים באוניות סוחר אך יש אשר יניח Kemo <laughs> אשר היה כערבות הבוכיות.
למרגלות ההר נולד, ליד הנחל, ידוד פזור נפש על ההר או בבחיים. ובנופלו בבוקר, לא אבות אחד על אדמתו, יקנו לו אחוזת עולם, ליד אמות המים השקטות. איפה ישנם עוד אנשים כמו האיש ההוא, אשר היה כערבות הבוכיות? וכמו מבצר עתיק היה בסוף הדרך. איפה ישנם? עוד אנשים כמו האיש ההוא אשר היה כערבות המוחיות איפה ישנם עוד אנשים כמו האיש ההוא אשר היה כערבות המוחיות איפה ישנם עוד אנשים Thank <laughs> you. 